Talking about DevOps and software development best practices is great. Uh, and it's no secret that most of our content is focused on the enterprise. But what happens if you're not this huge enterprise with thousands of employees? What happens if you're a small consulting company? When we're paid to deliver software on time and under budget, I mean, isn't quality a like to have? I got a chance recently to, to get reacquainted with a very prominent figure in the Oregon te tech industry, Ryan Cummingdeer from Five Talent Software, based out of Bend. What he told me about security, how to learn from failure with game days, and how microservices and security are not just the domain of the big boys might surprise you. listening to the Achieving DevOps podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Um, so folks, I want to introduce you guys to a good friend of mine, Ryan Cummington over at uh, Five Talent. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Thank you. So, so I interviewed you in the book, and, and your your quotes are kind of sprinkled throughout, but maybe there's a few people out there who still don't really know who Ryan is. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell me about where you're from and your history? Sure. Um, currently, I am the chief technology officer at a software consulting firm, uh, Five, Five Talent. Um, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily where you are today. It's the journey of how you got here, right? Um, so, you know, uh, a little bit about me. You know, I was a engineer and computer nerd from basically sixth grade when I took my first uh, uh, basic programming class. So, you know, I was a computer nerd early on, uh, kind of knew that was my my track in life to be an engineer and, and to deal with uh, computers. And uh, it's been quite the journey. So most of the time of my life, it's been consulting and uh, dealing with, uh, you know, translating people's uh, thoughts and, and communications into reality with uh, development and coding and websites and mobile apps and so forth. But uh, that's kind of where I've gotten to today. Um, I think I started consulting for uh, the government early on and then moved over into a nonprofit sector and then moved back into more commercial uh, where I'm at right now. So everything's got a different challenge, but um, I, I lots of lessons learned, <laughs> uh, a lot of retrospects, right, where um, I've had to figure out how to improve myself either personally or professionally and, and move on. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's a little bit about my background right now. Um, we have a, a fairly small consulting team. I think we're about 45 uh, staff right now. And we do uh, all sorts of, whether it's, you know, Fortune 500 companies or nonprofits or startup companies, whether, you know, mobile apps, IoT apps, uh, web applications, do a lot of AI, uh, AI stuff and proof of concepts and uh, a lot of different experiences, which is a lot of, it's a lot of fun. So I basically get to start a new company every week, it feels like, and uh, and all the lessons learned that go along with that. So, so that's a little bit of who I am and where I'm at right now. And you ended up in Central Oregon. I did. So uh, I went to school in Idaho, met my wife there. My wife grew up in Salem. Uh, beautiful Central Oregon is the outdoor mecca uh, of outdoor activities. And uh, my, my wife and I and my family love backpacking, mountain biking, fishing, kayaking, you name it. And we can do that out our backyard. So 
we love where we live, and uh, we can I can write software anywhere I live. Isn't that nice? So where do you see your, you, yourself in like five years? Five years. So it's interesting. I started off in the engineering space and uh, very, very technical, hands-on development, 80 hours a week type of work, and been doing that more and more, and then uh, have moved into you know managing CTO, uh, more systems architecture, and a lot more of kind of DevOps consulting as far as how to approach software development projects and how to manage them and how to measure success. Uh, I see myself still going that direction. Uh, I'd love to get my hands dirty, so I still have my my moonlighting projects at home where I'm tinkering with new technologies and projects on my own. Uh, but as far as my corporate uh, experience and business day-to-day life, it is doing more and more of managing uh, you know, software projects in the cloud specifically. Um, you know, a lot of what I've learned and a lot of what I enjoy teaching others is more of the process around software development process, uh, development projects, um, how to measure success, how to work with people, how to, you know, have, you know, minimize surprises, um, all of those type of things that go around the software development process, you know. Uh, so that's, I see myself staying in the same space um quite a bit but because uh, that's i feel like a lot of what my passion is and uh what my experience has built me up to be at this point and that that's interesting because i mean i'm kind of the same way i started out as a heads down developer and then after a while i thought well there's good people everywhere but what makes or breaks a project is like how these people are aligned it's it's management yeah. It's project management. It's just playing, getting people to play along and, and learning from our mistakes. So talk to me a little more about like measuring success and, and minimizing surprises. What does that mean in, in practice, Verified Talent? <laughs> well, I have a phrase here that I, I say quite often, which I really don't like the phrase. I need to come up with different wording, but the concept is the same. And, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest enemies of a developer is, is perfectionism, right? So a developer can spend days refactoring the same code to really make it because it's his art right a developer in the end is an artist and the develop and the code ends up being you know the, the uh, deliverable and a developer can just spend hours and days and weeks on a same piece of code and uh, a lot of times it's it's taking that step back and figuring out what is the business impact and the value that this development you know, is, is delivering. And, and uh, a lot of times I'll keep finding myself saying, you know what, the code has to be good enough, good enough to meet the business impact, good enough to meet the, the, the key performance indication, the indicators. Uh, it's got to solve the problem. Yeah, you know, in technology, something's going to be thrown away every three years anyway. So no matter if you write the most perfect code in the world, you're going to have to throw it away because technology changes, services change, you know, market needs change, uh, business operations change, and it's keeping that in mind. And that's really taking that step back and how to measure success is really identifying that business goal and that, the KPI, right, at the higher level and understanding how to translate that down to the developer to say, okay, you might be, you know, uh, you might might think this feature that this client has asked for is ridiculous, but do you realize that this is going to, you know, the ROI for his overhead is going to be paid off within a month. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's saving him so much money when we develop this feature, regardless if it's going to be thrown away in two, in you know, two years. So uh, it, it's keeping that conversation and that bigger, that bigger picture in mind when you're talking to the people that are down in the weeds. So. I know, and, and we talked about that in the in the book about like the the whole MVP concept. Let's let's kind yeah. of circle back to that. I, I love that the story you told, by the way. But what yeah. um, it was great. Uh, what have you kind of learned along the way? Then 
Is there a life lesson you'd like to share with us? Well, and a lot of what I've said in the book uh, is is something I'm still saying now. It's it's really focusing on uh, what problem you're trying to solve. Um, and the, the conversation that we have with our clients quite often is, you know, the problem that you didn't come to, you came to us, wasn't that this gray is not the right shade of, shade of gray or that this button is too big. You know, the problem that you've come to us is a business problem whether it's a workflow or a deliverable of some sort or cost savings. Um, so, you know, defining that MVP, whether it's usability, whether it's functionally, whether it's quality or performance or reliability, whatever that, that uh, MVP attributes look like for that business on how they're measuring success, it's reminding them that every step of the way. And I do that same thing in life, too, with my kids. Uh, and, and I really try to focus on, okay, you know, what are you doing during these soccer practices? You're practicing for something. What are you trying? What's your goal in mind? And, you know, whether you're spending 20 hours a week practicing or 10 hours a week practicing, how much do you want to invest in what you're trying to trying to get in the end? Uh, and of course, you know, as a very type A person where I'm kind of organized and want to approach every problem with a specific goal in mind, it works out really well for me. Um, when I have my, my 11 year old, that is a, a little bit more, um, you know, not type A, uh, all over the place, it's really hard to help them focus on, you know, what the deliverables of whatever she's working on. But it's the same conversation that I have with my clients on, you know, let's try to focus in on, on what needs to happen here. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a concept to play across the board. And, and unfortunately, that perfectionism and uh, is a attribute that gets um, compromised a lot of times during that approach. Okay. So. Awesome. You and I, I think we both kind of realized um, probably about the same time, you know, Agile's great um, to an extent. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I'm turning out work every two weeks, right? But you kind of mentioned, sometimes you challenge that. Um, like, hey, really, how often does your work actually get out the door of production? Oh, you know, we do quarterly releases, you know? Yeah. And and you said, hey, you know, do the, the real challenge, the real litmus test here is do the people supporting your software and environments and the people that are writing your ap applications, do they actually get along? I thought that was really, a, that, that's very good advice, like culturally, like that's the test of how good. Yeah, I mean, Agile is is not one department, right? It is the whole pipeline of, from concept of a feature um, or the uh, discovery of a bug, all the way through the developers, the QA, the project managers, the, um, you know, the end users. Um, and so it's, it's getting that whole pipeline to be agile for sure, but it's also how they get along together. And that's what I was really trying to talk about as far as, you know, a good team is, is respecting each other's um, responsibilities, understand that the QA department is just as important as the PM, who's just as important as the developers. And that's, uh, it's, it's a body um, that is working together and you can't have one part of the body that's not functioning as well, because then in the end, you don't get the deliverables that you're, that you're needing. So it's, it's having that mutual respect um, within the team in the different departments and making sure that they understand that, you know, everybody plays a piece in, in what the outcome will be. And it, it, as far as onboarding at Five Talent goes, we try to instill that in a lot of the, whether no matter what the role is. So, so we just hired a few uh, developers over the last couple of weeks, and they spend the last couple of weeks job shadowing every job role at Five Talent. So they understand what is a what does a client strategy do? What does a what does a product manager do? What does a PM do and a QA person and um, what does the technical documentation person do? And so they have. 
um, they have empathy uh, to understand what that person's going through and what the, the, the skill sets required, but also understand the value that they're bringing as part of the, big, the bigger picture in that team. And, um, and, and the reason why I feel like that's important in the agile space is because that whole team has to understand the values of, of delivering something out, whether, whether the developers turn it out every two weeks, but the QA needs to have that same paradigm of being able to be nimble and deliver things out. Same thing with the PMs, same thing with uh, the designers and, and everybody in that queue. So that's, it's really understanding that, okay, if a designer really needs two weeks to do something, the developer might have to change his timeline in order to help that designer get something out there faster. So it's making sure everybody works as a team and respects each other's uh, responsibilities. Yeah, I think I think John Willis once said, you know, DevOps is, is empathy. And yeah. it's funny that you think, um, you know, Five Talents is not a, a thousand or ten thousand person company, but you still think the first couple weeks you have your developers spend a day or so with each someone from each role so that they can understand what that work means. That's quite an investment. I mean, it's. You know, a lot of smaller companies probably would not would not be willing to pay that kind of price. Yeah, we, we definitely are, you know, investing in employees for the long term. Um, you know, as a consulting company, our intellectual property is the people. You know, our value are the people. And uh, so the longer we have people here, you know, the more valuable they are to us just because they are a part of that uh, process of improvement, part of that team. And it's long, it's, it's lifelong relationships, right? So it's uh, being able, whether you're in work or in personal life, getting to know the people you're working with and and what their responsibilities are either on the job or in their personal life or what their interests are and how they work their personalities it's the fun part of working right you know i enjoy working with my 11 year old that com thinks completely <laughs> different than i do um and so it's, it's trying to make sure that we are both on the same page with what our goals are and that, and if we're all if we're both on the same page uh then we know that we're both making the same effort to get there we might go about it differently awesome so tell me then a little bit, you know, I find the one of the interesting parts about the SRE movement that a lot of people ignore is the whole role of of like, how do we learn from failure? You know, do we uh, do we have a blameless postmortem? Do we feed that back into like a, a game day scenario? And I found that when we started talking about this, I found that fascinating that you take retrospectives very seriously. Do you want to kind of um, talk to me a little bit about that? how that works at five yeah, Absolutely. We don't consider a project complete until a retrospective has happened. Um, you know, and there's a lot of stats out there that, that talk about um, you know, the number of lessons learned on the failed project versus a successful project. And those retrospects highlight both, right? Um, intentionally what was done well and what we should do again and what was failed. And, you know, the hardest part about that is uh, talking about those failures while not trying to in point out individual people, but talking about the team in general as owning the process and owning the deliverable. And that gets back to what I was saying earlier as far as a team member goes. And, you know, if, if it's a failure, it's a team failure. If it's a, it's a success, it's a team success. And, uh, you know, we're, we're each trying to keep each other accountable for what those responsibilities are of the other team members, um, but also being able to talk openly about what those failures might be at the retrospect. So we literally will not, in our project management software, we will literally not close that project complete until we have that retrospect and we have those notes delivered and action items taken out of those notes to say, this is what we need to do to improve our process. So um, it's sometimes very frustrating for a project manager or a developer or anybody at Five Talent because just because you've gone through one project doesn't mean that's the way you're going to go through the next project. Because we try to, we quickly try to um, apply those 
lessons learned to the next project. And then we could do the retrospect again. And, you know, whether it's agile as a software development process or agile in our, um, uh, in our business management and the way we're approaching our clients and the kickoff meetings, uh, every process we have, we were always trying to do iterative changes to it. And uh, it keeps you on your toes for sure. And uh, when a client, when a new employee comes on board, they say, all right, where's the best practices? And my typical answer is, well, uh, my typical answer is, well, I'll tell you my, my current practices as of today. We have a retrospect tomorrow, so we'll let, we'll let you know what the new ones are next week. Um, you know, of course, you have the fundamentals kind of in place. You've, you've got your framework in place, but there's a lot of changes along the way. So those retrospects, uh, it's, it's key to how Five Talent can keep um, growing, understanding new best practices as far as DevOps processes go, software development processes go, technologies, how to communicate to the client is always a, a topic of, okay, how can we minimize um, surprises? How can we set expectations better? Um, you know, how, how can we show our value to the client? How can we give them a, a guidance or advice and sh share our lessons learned with the client so they don't go through the same thing? So it's, it's always something that we, we try to look at the the bigger picture of the project and not just was it delivered on time on budget with scope um that's a, a fairly minimal effort it's, it's a really the bigger picture there so it's and it's great that we look at this like project by project and we learn some lessons and roll it forward and i love the fact that hey our, our best practice it's a living document it changes by the week that's great what about mm -hmm. like when there's an actual outage or um, you know, high severity kind of a production failure. Do, how do you guys handle that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned game days and game days is a proactive way to try to minimize those downtimes and outages uh, as far as, you know, being prepared for those outages. And so if those game days don't happen and there is an outage, what does our response look like? And then doing those response, those retroactives to those responses, but it, it happens inevitably on, uh, on projects, uh, on in product, uh, production environments. Um, a third party uh, dependency will go down, um, you know, somehow code will get pushed all the way through testing and QA departments and code reviews and gets out to production and hits an edge case that we didn't think about and ends up, you know, taking down the whole system or you have a denial of service attack or whatever ends up happening, eventually it happens. And it's, it's prepping your team, setting the expectation that that's going to happen with a client. But then it's, it's um, having some sort of baseline best practices in place where we say, look, guys, um, you know, here are the roles that are involved here. This is how we approve, uh, approach things. You know, we don't make those changes directly in production. You have to test them out, do, do, you know, do your testing, staging, and production environments. So you have the process documented, but, you know, it, it, uh, there's always a different problem every time. So um, it's eventually learning the conceptually lessons learned. Of, okay, these are the things that we should look for, whether our third-party dependencies, service limits, um, things like that, and with the denial service, security breaches. Um, but going back to the team after those events happen, and especially going to the client, because obviously the client's looking for answers, um, it, it's a very it's a very typically humbling experience where we sometimes we have to tell the client, look, we screwed up. We apologize. We own it. Um, this is the way we're fixing it this time. This is the way we're going to fix it next time. This is why. This is what we're doing to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I'll try to avoid these in the future. Um, and sometimes it's not our fault. And this is we. we you know, we say, okay, uh, this third-party dependency it went down. Um, it was too tightly coupled to the application, which means it took the application down. Um, this is what we can do to fix it. We can make it more loosely coupled and have a kind of a graceful uh, degradation of the application if something else you know, goes down around it. Um, 
So it's it's doing that retrospect on those downtime outages. Um, a lot of times what we found is our biggest area of improvement is typically the process around those, not necessarily the solutions to the answer. Because those urgent situations, um, they will tend to lead to insecure processes to get things done. Um, some people sometimes will have that mentality that security slows down processes. Well, that's not necessarily the case, but that's what will happen a lot of times when um, uh, a hot your fix production type servers of a situation. go down. Yeah. A hot fix is required. Let's bypass security to get it out there as soon as possible. Well, that just puts a, a bigger problem on the problem. And so it's, it's even telling the client, look, yes, I know other development companies can get this done and fixed in 30 minutes. But what we're trying to avoid is that fix being hacked a day later or um, having a data breach or, you know, we need to make a permanent fix. And so let's take instead of 30 minutes to throw something in production and then figure out how to test it later. Let's go through the proper testing. It might take two hours to get it back up, but then we know it's, there's not going to be surprises on our on our fix. And so we're testing the fix. Um, so it's it's and there's always trade-offs and compromises that happen during those urgent situations. But it's making sure the client and our team walk through those trade-offs and make them intentionally. Um, so we're on the same page. So it sounds to me like, um, and we've all been in that position where it's like, look, this has to get out the door. Let's just run these scripts. But generally speaking. Uh, when you guys have to do a rollback, you're you're always kind of rolling things out using your CI/CD pipeline. Uh, almost right. anything gets tested. You you don't like doing like the 30 minute fix. You you try to you try to get done right the first time so you can do a clean rollback. Yep, absolutely. So as, I think as I mentioned, uh, the infrastructure as code is pretty critical. Um, so when you need to make an infrastructure change, or whether whether you need to make a code change, um, or there is a data change a rollback or a, um, a morph uh, a change um, doing that through that ci cd pipeline where it goes it's an automated deployment and it goes to the qa department it goes to the staging environment that has that production level of data so we can see if that band-aid is going to work at scale um, in the in the actual production environment before it hits the production and so that that ci cd process if we go through those steps some it'll sometimes take four times longer than a hot fix right on production that is a developer sshing into a server and uh, making a code change or going to the database and writing a SQL script real fast. Do you guys do like um, feature flags or launch darkly type of, um, you know, like like selective uh, toggles, I guess, for for features? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we'll we'll take the typical approach where you're in you know, as far as code management goes. You you've got a branch for per feature. Uh, and then you uh, submit a pull request to merge it into the main production branch. Um, but we also have different um, deployment environments. So uh, like a kind of a canary deployment where you might want to test out this market before you test out that market, a, a percentage of the users or a, re a regional geographic region, uh, depending on the scale of the feature and how it's being affected and uh, what the acceptance level is across the user base. Um, yeah, we'll definitely uh, roll things out uh, differently. And um, th that's uh, the other approach we've done is just a, the blue-green type of deployment where uh, we'll deploy everything out once it's checked, once it's healthy, um, once it's gone through a, a, the full stack of testing, um, then we'll make that last-minute DNS switch to point to the new environment and, and tear down the old one. But, yeah, everything is automated. Nice. Um, you mentioned – when we were talking, you said, Dave, look, we – like, usually the, the – our first sprint, we're proving out, you know, a, a basic feature the customer wants, but what we're really demonstrating is our deployment pipeline. And then infrastructure as code, well, that, that comes later because the customer 
sometimes finds it hard to see the value initially. Is that, did I get your take on that accurate? Yeah, and it, it, it's a fine line there because both, I mean, CICD is a little bit infrastructure as code as well. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a, um, at some level. So really what, what that means, what I'm trying to say there is um, we absolutely will set up the CICD pipeline from day one um, because the last thing I want to do is for security reasons, I never have our developers, our core developers accessing the staging or production environments. Um, the you know the the developers have access to development and testing environments uh, just for segmentation of access and security. So whenever there's a real bug, if they can't duplicate in development, they'll look at testing environments, see how they duplicate it. Um, but they we keep them away from production data, you know, where where it's scrubbed and to move before it gets moved down. Um, but that CI/CD pipeline to set up, it's a it, we've set up so many different technology stacks in so many different type of environments, whether it's containers, serverless you know, monolithic or EC2s, whether it's, you know, there's so many different application um, deployment configurations. We've got a lot of templates for them. So it's a pretty quick little process for us, depending on the technology stack, depending on the deployment type, um, to get that set up with whatever the code repository is um, through the build process, the deploy process, uh, and then the automated testing environment. So um, that will be the very first milestone. So we'll get that CICD pipeline set up. So that the 80% of the developers that don't really know how that CICD type pipeline works, they can focus on what they're good at, which is um, I'm going to write code and I'm going to check it in. Once my lead developer does my code review, he's going to merge it in. And all I know is it shows up at the staging and testing at that point. Um, you know, conceptually, they usually need to know how to do that CICD pipeline works, but not mechanically um, is, is the majority of our developers. We have a specialized team that really just focuses on the troubleshooting them and installing those CICD pipeline. Um, for infrastructure as code, you know, there's a lot of testing that goes on, right? So mm-hmm. once we deploy our code out, uh, a really good example is when does it make sense to, you know, when we have a server, when does it make sense to scale out versus scale up? Uh, you know, does the application that I'm needing, does it need a dedicated uh, how many dedicated CPUs, uh, processing and need memories that need to use. So there's a lot of testing that goes on board before we really want to automate that. So in our development environments, which is always the first environment set up, and our testing environments, we'll do that manually to, to play with those metrics, to figure out what's the right mix of CPU, memory, network environments. Um, what is the tech, right? Is it, can I put the same deployment on MySQL or SQL Server or Postgres? Um, where does this shine? And once we figure that out and we have, you know, so we do some stress testing and security testing around those um, and kind of figure out what that baseline is and where it shines, then we will automate it. And so we're like, okay, it's out and we're going to push this out to production. When it gets to staging and production, it's 100% automated in that infrastructure. But in development, we want to keep tweaking it to see where that right mix is. And it's so much easier to do that when you're actually hands-on on that server to say, you know what, let's change this virtual memory a little bit. Let's, um, you know, let's install this other plugin on the operating system. Let's do things manually here for a while to really, because it, it really does speed up that tweaking of the environment before we um, automate that, that setup. Does that define that line better between 100% automating CICD versus doing infrastructure as code a little later? <laughs> you no, know, absolutely. Um, you can't okay. have everything nailed down right off, <laughs> right, right on, on day one, can you? 
it usually it's an iterative no, it, process, and that's what you're describing. Oh, absolutely. And you're trying to get, once again, back to what I was saying earlier, you're trying to get good enough um, for that first deployment until you've learned your lessons, and then you can start iterating on the infrastructure as code. But at that point, you've hit production, and you need that a rollback ability, and you need to be able to keep track of that. But we don't typically automate that 100% infrastructure until it gets to the staging and production environment. And I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, hey, we have our code. We have a, a senior developer, a lead that looks over, you know, code yep. before we do a check-in. Um, I talked with Tyler Hardison over at Red Hawk about a week yeah. ago. Love Tyler. And he really went into more detail about how, hey, I think it's very important we have some playground rules because we want these peer reviews to have teeth. It can't be just a buddy system. But we Absolutely. don't want this. We don't want the silverback programmers beating the crap out of our junior developers like a gauntlet, right? <laughs> so, how do you kind of make that peer review a safe space? I mean, how do you? I, I'm assuming Five Talents really wants their reviews to be productive, but not mean. <laughs> and we've gone both ways. Sense. Trust me, it's, it's a lesson learned. We've had we've had developers kind of raise their hand and say, "This is ridiculous. I feel like I'm, getting, I'm I've been a senior developer for ten years and I can't push one line of code out." Uh, we we've learned. I mean, it's, it's a learned process, right? Of uh, you know, there are some very obvious black and white checklist things that we have documented in wikis to say this is our best practices if you're using php or .NET or node j you know javascript or whatever that is we have some very um you know here's our our development environment stack here's our linting tool or we have some of those things that are very black and white that's in our wiki that the developer should know from you know as part of the onboarding process and and there's some friendly reminders if they don't do that and that's pretty straightforward but then we have some conceptual things that's um uh, I'd say very subjective on with a lead developer on how they're reviewing the code and how that feedback is delivered. And that's something we're, we're constantly trying to work on to say, you know, um, and uh, it comes back to, you know, we've told our client that this task is going to take four hours. Lead developer, you have one hour of the one hour of that to do code reviews. So this is what our effort is, and it's going to be good enough to get to four hours, which means we're going to crank out that task. It's going to take three hours, um, hopefully, if we estimated correctly. Uh, the lead developer is going to do a code review. We expect there's going to be feedback um, to the developer, but we can't go overboard. We can't have this developer do another five, six hours on this task unless there's something substantially wrong. And then lead developer, you're a part of the team. We need to figure out how to educate the developer better so this doesn't happen again. Um, how did we miss the expectations when we started project? Those five hours end, end up being non-billable to our clients if that happens. But it, a lot of time that that um, that gray area gets defined for time boxing to say, We've got an hour to fix this code. If it's a three-hour task, let's go through and polish it up. Let's address the, the lowest hanging fruit on security mm -hmm. issues, reliability issues. Um, and then a lot of times they will jot down, hey, if I was going to give another 10 suggestions, here they are. We'll put them in the backlog and see if we can get to them later. Um, but we know we can live with what's going up there now. It's not going to be insecure, and it's going to be able to scale. It might be more cost um, costly for the client. We can talk about that. If we need to refactor, we can do that. So, but it's definitely a fine line on how to, it's kind of how to, how to give constructive criticism to another developer in a, uh, accountability <laughs> way where you're not, um, being like kind of judgmental and condescending and, um, it, it's an art. And, uh, when I, when we, at least at five talent, whenever we have a new lead developer that needs to start uh, mentoring other developers and doing those code reviews, once again, they're going to job shadow for the first project. So they're going to see a full, a first project all the way from day one to day 100. 
and pair up with that lead developer doing the code reviews. Now that pair up process for me is a non-bill investment again, um, but I need to make sure the quality is the same. You know, I say quality when I'm talking about is quality of the code, but also quality of the culture and making sure that they understand the respect that we need to have with each other and that our culture is defined by how we give each other um, advice and, and how that's being delivered and the expectations that are being set. So it, it's an effort and it has to be an intentional effort. That's, that's interesting. When I, when I look back when I was a dev lead, um, one of the things that I think looking back, I should have spent more time on, um, the retrospectives were great. And I tried to keep it short. I, I really wanted this to, we have to do this meeting every two weeks. I want it to be half of a day, right? I mm. wish I would have sunk more time into everyone getting up there for five minutes, maybe 10, and doing like a show and tell them what, they've, what they did. I think that's a great way of yeah. spreading information without raising hackles like you can with a peer review. You kind of walk through what you did, how you went about it, and it's a good way of kind of spreading spreading the love. Yeah, absolutely. At Five Talent here, we have Friday lunch and learns where, you know, the, oh, interesting. Uh, we sit down every Friday, typically from like 12 to 1.30. Um, we'll do corporate updates at that time, but we'll spend a good hour on this is this and, and summarizing retrospects of other projects. Um, you know, so right now we've got a staff of 45. Well, we might have 50 projects going on. So it's very rare that one person really knows really what everybody else is doing. Um, and so we'll highlight, okay, we just launched this mobile app. Here are the things that we ran into. This is one of the things that went really well. So we'll summarize some of those retrospects in those lunch and learns. And a lot of times, because we are primarily developer focused team, we'll jump into some code to say, look at this cool code that I did. It was much better than the last project where I did this. We just use this new technology. We use GraphQL instead of RESTful APIs and look at the pros and cons. This is the lessons learned. So we'll really try to spread that, the knowledge transfer and the learning curve, um, whether that learning curve is a process improvement or a code change or um, the way we did testing or whatever that is. We, we try to spread that knowledge intentionally during lunch and learns. Um, so it, it's a really fun time for me because I get to see everybody in the team kind of speaking up about something they, they did that they were happy about and something that they did that uh, they wouldn't do again. So. Right. That's nice. That, that's awesome. Uh, one thing that keeps on coming up, even in this conversation, is the role of security. Um, mm -hmm. We all talk about shifting left, right? But we're putting a lot of burden on the, the developer to think about things like quality with unit testing and security. And I don't know about you, but security is not not my core comp. So I'm assuming you guys mentioned, hey, we do linting, we, we do security scans, probably static analysis of some sort. Probably check mm -hmm. your open source libraries too. Do you guys do like yeah, penetration yep. testing? Do you do like red, red, blue team exercises or? We depends on the project, um, okay. you know, and it depends on the data classification, right? So if, you, if you're dealing with public data, there's a devil, different level of urgency than if you're dealing with confidential or private data, uh, right. you know, whether it's PCI or HIPAA or whatever that is. So it depends on the project. Um, but you're right. We, the, you know, developer, the junior developer cannot be the security expert that are that the chief security officer is. Um, and so what, what we try to do at five talent, is the the key person in charge uh, that has the most knowledgeable information about security um, will try to document in those pragmatic ways what that developer needs to think about. Um, and so, and it, and it comes with lessons learned. And we once again, we try to spread the knowledge, but it's like, okay, developer, this is things that you are doing that you are affecting in the security world that might trickle down. And uh, it's, it's keeping each other accountable as a bigger team to say, the lead developer also knows those same 
pragmatic things you're doing in the code um, as far as, you know, don't store your username and passwords in the Git repository. Um, you know, make sure that they're dynamically author, you know, authorized through a uh, service. So you, you walk through the principles and the concepts and then, you know, the lead developer will, um, uh, will enforce those. And then at the next step up, um, you know, we have different kind of rules for a project manager. So we take the big umbrella of security and we try to pick off little pieces like, okay, project manager, what really affects you is how you're asking for username and passwords from the client. And this is the way we need to treat password sensitivity and security. And, um, and this is how, you know, we're, we're deploying out uh, a runbook or a playbook documentation that might, that we're trying to keep out the confidential information out of like our, some of the environmental information. Um, so it's, it, it's, um, it's keeping that security contextualized within the role. Um, but then each, each, knowing that each role, it keeps accountable to the other roles, if that makes sense. And it's, probably a lot to um, expect from people, but we try to, you know, make each other say, look, a developer, I want you to feel free to give advice to a project manager and a project manager, give advice to the, to the developer. We want to, we want to keep each other accountable because it's really hard to have all knowledge of security from one developer, from one person. Right. Um, and, so and I imagine this is a part approach. of your, this is, excuse me, this is probably a part of your launch checklist too. And the more you do this, the better you get at, right? Security. Absolutely. And, and security is never a concept from uh, at the checkpoint of publishing date. It is the checkpoint of this is my first contact with the client date. Um, and so it's integrated from day one, because if you integrate it on day 100, you're in a world of hurt because you got to go back and redo a lot of things or uh, unfortunately scrap things because of how they're approached. Um, so it, it's got to be an intention from day one. It makes things so much easier. Yeah. Instead of coming in and you do a scan, there's 5,000 flags because you're on day 200 of this project. A lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is you're telling your client you're going to go live June 1st. You're, <laughs> you're done with your development on May 30th. And you're like, oh, yeah, let's do the penetration chest. Oh, crap. That's oh, a lot of uh, threats that are coming up. So, yeah. And that's kind of, it's the same thing with quality too, isn't it? We're trying to avoid these very late stage gotchas that, that really slow up a project by month. Yeah. One of, one of the yeah. interesting things I think in our talk um, that woke me up, I came into, before you and I sat down, shoot, like a year ago, um, my impression was microservices are great. They work especially well if you're a company like Amazon that can throw, you know, 100,000 developers that are, you know, the big battleship type organizations, you should have microservice. But I mean, we talk about five talents, you guys are, uh, you know, under under 50 person team, lean and mean, and yet you have found microservices to deliver on things like reusability. That really, it quite surprised me. Um, you find, you admit that a hey, microservices does have some, some downsides, but on the whole, it's been a big win for you guys. Absolutely. Microservices is not only a, a concept of how to approach a software architecture, but it's also once the architecture is in place, as far as a microservices approach, there's all sorts of benefits. So it could be a one-man development team writing microservices. And once those microservices are deployed, the benefits of that application is the security, the isolation of those different services, the reliability, meaning they're not dependent on each other as well as affecting each other as far as downtime. If Once again, they're loosely coupled. Um, it's, you know, the costs, meaning that if you appropriately um, architected that microservices, you can scale some of those services that need more traffic than some of the other services, which should keep your cost down quite a bit lower. Um, so for example, we've got one client right now, uh, one, he has, they have a product 
and it's only it's a one developer product uh, a project team and um, it's a you know it was a monolithic application written about eight years ago and our biggest recommendation at this point is you really need to break this apart to be microservices because this one instance is handling 10,000 users from the public and your 10 administrators and unfortunately your 10 administrators are crippled when the public gets on the website and starts interacting with things and those are two completely different traffic patterns and the, the needs behind the scenes are completely different. So in order to re-architect that environment to be microservices where I can focus on the traffic pattern and use the, the use case of the public accessing the data versus the administrators accessing the data, break that apart and all of a sudden now, you know, the administrator area is secured down, it's isolated, it's a lot more reliable, we can um, change the, the metrics of the CPU and memory required or whatever that, um, um, environment looks like to meet the demand, the traffic demand of the admin, administrator area versus the public who needs a burstable, um, you know, different level of uh, data analysis and, and traffic patterns and um, scalability needs and security needs than the administrator. So separating them out, even if it was one developer, separating them out um, was hugely uh, impactful on the architecture. It does, though, and I'll tell you this, it does, though, add some administration work, right? So now we've got two different microservices. Well, there are those common things, those helpers that you need a lot of times in two different environments. So um, I still need a, a database connection manager. Um, now I have to duplicate some of that work with one microservices and another microservices. So there is some overhead um, with helpers and, and um, con, uh, consistent code across the different features that you have to learn how to approach and how to manage and how to use, um, but the benefits far outweigh those negatives. And so no matter if it's a development team of one or a hundred, um, the microservices affects the, pro the project in a positive way. Yeah, I think when you and I talked, you said, hey, for a large enterprise, microservices are pretty much, it's, it's just a, a no-brainer. It's you have to have it, you know. Yeah, the productivity of the development team is so mm -hmm. much better on microservices than on monolithic application. Um, you know, there is a lot of science around how many developers can work on the product a project at once um, before they start stepping onto their toes, and that that number is a lot more obvious on a monolithic application where you're going to step on each other's toes really fast uh, versus a microservices approach, and you might have. Um, for example, a person that's really just an expert on the login authentication um, um, authorization microservice of an application and has nothing to do with uh, the workflow of reporting or BI tools or anything like that. And so keeping those, those developers isolated and even those functional um, teams isolated is not a bad thing because they, they can work independently of each other. And it's interesting. I was, I was interviewed a few weeks ago and, and uh, one of the interviewers, he expressed this very strong opinion that, you know, oh, I think the pendulum is swinging back on microservices, you know, that people have woken mm -hmm. up. It's not what, you know, it wasn't all that we were promised. Like, like it was, it's so up part two, right? And I kind of, I disagreed with that pretty strongly. Um, I feel like unlike SOA, um, microservices, we have proven in the wild examples of success with it. And your company's one of those. And although, yes, you know, there's things like performance concerns, right? That there's troubleshooting is harder. We talk about distributed computing. Um, it's, yep. you know, we have to aggregate data for reporting. It's hard to keep those data layers discrete. It's hard to keep our domain separate and well-defined, right? Logging is more challenging. All these things we know. That being said, it helps in so many other ways. Um, it, it, 
it's it would be to me it should almost be the default especially when you're talking about a newer project is that kind of your yeah. your position as well absolutely it's our it's our default uh, uh assumption that we're approaching a project with microsoft um it's interesting when you were talking about that because that paradigm is the same paradigm that's being approached right now to data management. Um, so traditionally, and I'm part of this because I've grown up in this, um, you know, third normal form normalized database was the ideal, right? So you have one large database sitting out there that's in no data duplication, you know, and it's 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 the ERD diagram is to the T, no, you know, normalized. Um, nowadays, storage is cheap. Um, computing power is cheap. Um, it, it's data duplication and, uh, for the for the purpose of supporting these microservices, but also uh, for you know faster reporting and, and other things. And so it's that same paradigm in the database where now you're taking this monolithic large ERD diagram um, database and breaking it up into multiple different storage uh, locations, storage types, storage formats. Uh, duplicating data and it's kind of that microservices paradigm on the data layer too now which is mm-hmm. um, it, for a long time it was hard for me to grasp of more of that data, that data lake right uh, versus the, the big old database uh, but yeah it's that, that same paradigm is being applied to lots of different um, areas and it's, it's being proven and uh, we've been very happy in the software architecture world on that there's definitely the lessons learned as you said um uh the the domains the, the models the uh the logging the troubleshooting um just like any new um uh, concept of how you're going to do it, any type of new design pattern you're going to have to figure out how to to work with it but i mean one of the one of the biggest benefits we hardly ever talk about um for you you're you know you're you're trying to hire people in central oregon or Portland or Seattle and developers skilled engineers don't grow on trees. So if you're confined to just one particular tech stack, you're narrowing it quite a bit, you know, but, but if we use microservices and we have, you know, rest based protocols, we can underneath the hood, we could have go or .NET or whatever we want to serve up this data and allows us to kind of be able to hire more people. And use a language that better fits the the job. Yeah, yeah, and, and every language has its own pros and cons, um, and some of those pros are simply the fact that more people know that language, and not necessarily that has a better framework or better reliability or performance. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The, the microservices definitely help us utilize the different technology stacks and the pros and cons that come along with it. Another thing that, that stood out when you and I talked was the whole concept of uh, of an MVP, a minimum viable product. And I remember you said to me, Dave, mm-hmm. a, a true MVP, it's something you're embarrassed to show your mom, right? <laughs> something you don't want anyone else to see, but you have to demonstrate this to the product owner, the sooner the better. And you said, usually the product owner finds that to be kind of an underwhelming experience. Um, talk me yeah. through that. Yeah, and to put some context around that again, um, it's, it's helping them identify that, hey, this is your number one KPI. This is the problem that you're trying to solve. And you know what, maybe it doesn't come down to usability. Uh, maybe it come, doesn't come down, and a lot of times where they're compromising on their expectations is usability or performance. Um, it's like, wow, well, it does what I do, but it's taken five seconds. I'm expecting like under a second for me to do this. Or you know what, it takes five clicks to get this done instead of one click. 
Um, and it's, it's very underwhelming in that perspective. And it's like, okay, we hear you. We understand that we can, that's easy to improve, but did it solve the problem? And if the, if the problem was my current app is not usable, that's a different topic. But if the problem is, I, you know, I'm trying to create a function to optimize something or to operationalize something I'm doing manually, you know, that's what, you know, we're really trying to focus on, whatever that KPI is, right? So um, uh, that's what I was really meaning by it's, it's underwhelming to the product owner. It's, uh, it, it might not look as pol pixel per perfect polished on the UI. It might not be as performant or scalable. For example, you can't throw you know a thousand users at it at one time and it's not going to crash. It's it's you, you need you need some room to grow and you can't have all the bells and whistles from day one. You got to learn how to pick and choose which features and some, that process right there of picking and choosing which features is typically a very painful process because it it, it really forces you into okay what problem am I really w trying to solve. Um, and, and delivering just that solution. Isn't it really hard to come up with the right KPIs to say this is what means success for this project? Especially hmm. you believe in doing this right at the out, out right, right on day one, you have the developers sit down and, and they've, you've got the KPIs and success criteria kind of outlined. So yeah, so the KPIs, um, key performance indicators, we focus on five different uh, emphasis um, of the, those KPIs, and we identify those before we start the project, because it's really hard to, to make decisions while you're doing development if you don't have the big picture of how is this project measuring, you know, how are we measuring the success of this project. Um, so it's it, we we definitely identify those KPIs from day one during the discovery phase, during the the blueprints of the architecture to say you know what's gonna what's gonna meet the goal and what's the measures of success. Um, so we look at those security KPIs, the costs of the product, either ongoing or development costs. Um, you know, we'll look at the, the reliability as what's the, the disaster recovery plan, the recovery time objective, recovery point objective. Um, um, what is the performance, you know, latency expectations uh, of running reports, of logging in, whatever that is. Um, and then um, the last thing we look at really is the usability and what is the what is the user's expectations as far as how usable this app is going to be, how intuitive it's going to be, and how do we measure that? Um, and, and we identify that before we do development. That way we review them at the very end of the project or even at the milestone when we're delivering, delivering features to say, Hey, you know, client ABC, this is what we said the KPIs are. This is what we still agreed upon. This is what we delivered. What do you think? Uh, did we hit the mark or not? If we're not, let's go back and let's figure out what we need to do to improve it. And um, and then once we hit that, then we can define some some new KPIs um, for the for the next round of efforts for the phase two. So, that's that's really um, interesting because a lot of the times you're dealing with this, with stakeholders outside companies you're you're contracting to, and they say, oh yeah, what's your expectation as far as velocity? Well, I need to have this done in about about three months. Okay, and then what's your expectation on uptime? Oh, it needs to be six nines, right? Yeah. So you have this yep. tug of war between there's some maybe there's some implicit or not really um, you have to spend a lot of time getting the getting them to come to a good balance on reli reliability expectations versus being able to make ongoing changes to this very complex and shifting architecture. How do you kind of balance that? Yeah, no, we definitely call out the fact that we have placeholders to say, what is your finance team's KPIs? Um, and how does that, so we, we will get a list of KPIs for every for the different departments. And then we'll meet with our key stakeholder. We'll meet with our, our, our business decision maker because we, we try to identify just one for our projects. 
and say, look, you are the one that's making the final decisions, but here are all the KPIs from the sales department, the marketing department, the security department, the IT department, the, the finance department. Um, here are they all, here they are. Help us prioritize these KPIs so we understand which ones we're hitting first um, and which one's considered like a, a red issue versus yellow issue versus a green issue on, on the level of importance and urgency if they're not being. So it's, you know, we'll, we'll guide the clients through what our perspectives are of what's going to make the business impact. Um, usually it's, it's honestly pretty, it, it's easier uh, I think um, in reality than it sounds like on the phone here where uh, they usually come to us with one pain point. And a lot of times that pain point is, uh, are, we've been hacked so many times, we need some security issues fixed. And those KPIs start bubbling to the top pretty quick. Um, or, you know, our user onboarding experience, we're dropping 60% of our users during this because it's too difficult. Uh, we're trying to just solve this one problem of usability and, uh, you know, uh, building trust or confidence with the user during the onboarding experience. So we'll use that as a KPI. So we really, it, it comes actually, they, they come to us with usually one pretty big pain point. Yeah, and that way you can keep some focus. It's hard to hit five targets at once, isn't it? Um, it is, but being aware of it and being and documenting it uh, is is half the battle, right? So just asking the right questions. Um, what something that we've learned over time, and this has definitely been an experience for us, is you know we can't just report to the IT department. We can't just report to the product manager um, because we lose lose so much visibility on how the company and a whole gets impacted and how they measure the success of that one department. So it's it's uh, Quite often, we have found ourselves where a product manager will approach, approach us and say, we need this MVP built. And then we turn around and say, great, we would love the opportunity to talk to your finance department, your sales department, your IT department, your security department to make sure their perspective of this project um, and what they're measuring success. And then we have to you know, help them come up with a more unified measure of success. So we found that's quite often our, our, uh, our say, it's definitely our responsibility, but it's, it's quite often our um, involvement to get all the stakeholders involved. Consensus in on what only yeah. victory means, right? So you're obviously, I mean, um, Five Talents focuses quite heavily on, on Amazon. Right, as your as your guys' backbone. Yeah, I think nine out of ten projects we typically implement uh, on Amazon. And I forgive you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Microsoft talk. Yeah. Um, there's a book, there's a book, right? We gotta go back and forth. Uh, <laughs> there's a book called Ahead in the Cloud. Have you have you read it at all? Or I have not read that. No. It's a it's an interesting one, and, and it's all Amazon centric. It's uh, written by one of the lead architects over there, but he talks about one of the things I thought was interesting in that book was he says, lift and shift is not necessarily an anti-pattern. He, and he mentions some, some examples where he says, we were able to, first off, you get an immediate benefit as far as, you know, hey, we can see some operating cost uh, benefits out of this. And he says, also, then you can take the parts of your application that are not scaling well on on-prem or like full tech search, and you can sprinkle some AWS magic on and suddenly, you know, we can actually kind of ha allow this. Um, it's a better platform for innovation is a case that, that the office. Do you, do you view yeah. Lyft as being an anti-pattern or, I mean, where, where are you coming from with that? Huh, that's an interesting one. So um, Lyft and Shift, uh, in order to improve your workload, you, you really need that baseline, right? And it's hard to compare apples to apples when you are going, if you're doing a lift and tinker, you know, lift, re-architect re and shift, um, it's a lot easier to create those baselines, to compare the baselines if you do a lift and shift. And, um, and so you, then you can see 
okay, this is what exactly I was running on prem. This is what exactly I'm running on uh, in the cloud. You know, and and when I say lift and shift, then, you know, I'm just moving this uh, Docker image to that Docker image, and it's still trying to match the computing power and memory and everything else. Um, and then typically in that type of situation, your costs will go up um, because you're paying for what you use. You're, you're using your op costs instead of capital expenditure costs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, CapEx. And so um, typically your costs will go up. But as the author there said, now you have the opportunity for innovation. It's easier to adjust and to innovate and to um, uh, experiment um, in the cloud than it is on-prem just because the ability to spin up somebody else's architecture instead of um, – uh, purchasing your own. Um, so it, it's, if your whole goal was to lift and shift and you were stopping, that wouldn't be a good, that would not be a good solution. But if your goal is your long-term goal is I need to keep this product alive. I'm going to keep innovating on this product. Lift and shift is step one. Um, it's step one out of 20, you know, you have so much you can do after that, but it, you have to take that first step just so you can see what the baseline is. Um, you can see the, the, the performance metrics, the security metrics, the, the cost, and see how that changed. Uh, we're working on a really large project right now uh, where we're moving over several thousand VMs from on-prem to the cloud. Um, well, their costs are going to go up considerably, but now they have the ability to start re-architecting quickly and doing infrastructure as code more readily as far as now automating those deployments and those changes in the environment. And as, as the author said, it sounds like, um, the innovation is so much more uh, accessible um, when you're in the cloud, but that baseline has to be started somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I one uh, one last point too. I, I know um, we may be running over a little bit on time, right? I want to thank you for for spending this time with us. Um, you're you're very involved as well in, in kind of the the developer community. Uh, you've you've you're very active. Like there's a local uh, AWS uh, meetup group that you you host. Talk to me a little bit about. I mean, what what do you how do you benefit from that? Because you you are a CTO. I mean, you're you're very busy. Is it is it worth your time to to sink your effort into the community in that way? You know, so um, this is a, a bigger life question, right? On on mm-hmm. what is what is your life here? What is your life here about? And and what are you trying to do? And you know, for me, a lot for me, a lot of it is relationships. Who who are the people I'm meeting? What is interesting about their lives? And how we're different? And how we work together for common goals? Um, and I can only make those relationships by getting plugged into the community. Um, you know, I learn just as much from those meetup groups, hearing other people's experiences on how I can apply it to either my life personally or to my business life. Um, and so it's, it's, it's all about relationships, you know, going away and sitting in the hole and, and coding is great for your coding um, uh, improvements, but there's so much more about a developer or an engineer or an architect than the technical expertise. It's also your, your social expertise and, and your, your EQ about as far as how you go about working within the team. And that only gets improved when you're working um, within the community and with uh, the social environment there. Um, personally, in, in Central Oregon here, you know, I've got a large family. Um, I want to see my family have the same opportunities or better opportunities that I had growing up. So I'm heavily involved in like uh, STEM and education, computer science and education, because I want to make sure that um, you know that that's going to be a big emphasis in the future, and that they are taught from you know kindergarten up about what's available out there to them, best practices, um, things that they, you know, concepts they should understand. And because uh, it's part of their everyday life skills that they need. So whether it's STEM and education or whether it's um, other 
technical professionals in the industry. I, I also belong to some other meetup groups that have nothing to do with technology, mm-hmm. um, but more about, you know, what, what uh, what's going on in my personal hobby. Yeah. That's, I, I definitely like to see involvement from my employees and team too. Um, um, just because, you know, I want to, I want to support our local community. I uh, work here in Bend, Oregon and uh, in Portland and Seattle. And, you know, we want to make sure that community loves having five talent here just as much as we love being here. Well, that sounds like a great place to end. Ryan, thanks so much for your time. I enjoyed uh, meeting you back a year ago or so, and you really added a lot to that, to to the book. I just can't thank you enough. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm never short of opinions. So if you ever need more, you know where to find me. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. All right. Thanks again, Ryan. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.